Grace Team. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 10 to 12 this morning. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Well, baptism in America is quite a bit different than it is in much of the rest of the world. I remember uh, October 27th, 1991, I had just turned 8 years old, and some months prior, I had marched myself down to the front of Northside Baptist Church, Corsicana, Texas, to see Dr. David Hale waiting for me down front, and I told him I wanted to be baptized. And afterwards, he gave me a little, do you know what you're doing book that I went through with my parents. We went through for a couple of months, and then on that date in October, I was baptized, proudly, in front of the whole congregation. My mom and dad afterwards took me out for Tex-Mex and ice cream. Tex-Mex, all right? Not Alamex, Tex-Mex, okay? Uh, My choice, of course. This was your reward for being baptized. In April of 2013, I went to Southeast Asia on a mission trip. And it was the first time that I had been in a country that was hostile toward the spread of the gospel. Where people in churches, in house churches, were regularly raided by the government. And where Christians could tell you about their interactions with government officials. And it was then that I saw baptism in an entirely new light. See, the non-government regulated church there is underground, meaning it's hidden, it's completely secret. But baptism will be frequently occurring in lakes and streams and ponds out in the middle of public. Anyone that steps foot into the water takes their life into their own hands risks their family and themselves. Baptism is a public declaration of faith in Christ. It's mandated as as a covenant sign that your allegiance has changed and that the old way of life has died off completely and that you've been resurrected with Jesus to walk in newness of life. And in many places around the world... It makes you a threat to the established order. This morning is somewhat of a special service for us. This morning we're celebrating the coming to faith and baptism of someone who has been coming to our church for some time now. Serendipitously, we're also going through the Beatitudes and we come to the last beatitude that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. And Jesus is going to, to give this character profile that we've been looking at of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's going to give this uh, just a shot, one last shot of realism before he expounds on what life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is like. And so what we find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, this persecution that we're going to be looking at this morning, may be the exception, or may have been the exception in America, but for the rest of the world, it's often the rule. Let's look at our text this morning. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, 3 to 12, and then we're going to be focusing on 10 to 12 this morning. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've spent the last eight weeks, including this one, going through one by one the Beatitudes. And as I said this morning, we've come to the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what I've said about this list is it's not simply a a list of good things to do. Jesus isn't describing the all-stars in God's kingdom. Here's what they look like. Instead, Jesus has come onto the scene and He's introducing us to the kingdom of God, to God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And He's introducing it to all His listeners. And He opens the Sermon on the Mount. He lays out for them this character profile of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So all of the things in this list that we've encountered are true of citizens of the kingdom of God. Albeit imperfectly true, they're true of citizens of God's kingdom. This is the kind of person that is a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. We know that for many reasons, not least of which the first reward there in verse 3, you see that. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such a person. And as you make your way down the list, all the rewards that are given are rewards that anyone who is in Christ would expect in the age to come. All of them are rewards for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you're a follower of Christ, you would expect to not only belong in the kingdom of heaven, but you would expect to be comforted. You would expect to inherit the earth, to be satisfied with righteousness, to receive mercy, to see God, and to be called sons of God. All these are just one reward that is given to us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Just like these are characteristics that all describe the same person, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we've also seen quite clearly that God has a different set of values from the values of the world. Because the character profile of his citizen here that he describes is completely upside down to the world's value system. So as you look down the list, Jesus exalts the spiritually impoverished while the world exalts the proud. Jesus exalts the ones who mourn over their sin and the sinful state of the world that they're in while the world values the mantra, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Jesus values the meek while the world values the forceful and the proud. On and on this list goes, one by one, Jesus is exalting those whose character has been molded and shaped by the Spirit of God demonstrating humility before an almighty God rather than cherishing the values that the world has to offer. And now we come to this final beatitude. 
which as we'll see in a moment, is actually a double beatitude. If the first seven beatitudes are the pages of Christian character, then this last beatitude is the spine of the book that holds them all together. And the reason I say that is because this last beatitude is a test of resolve. There are just two observations that I want us to make as we make our way through the text this morning. And as we do, I want you to look over the horizon of our culture. As you see the storm clouds gathering over Christianity. The American culture in particular, but the world in general, has grown hostile toward the message of the cross. The storm clouds are gathering over Christianity. And this morning, I want you to ask yourself, am I ready? Am I ready for persecution? First observation that I want you to see in this text, the righteous should expect retaliation. The righteous should expect retaliation. Look again at verses 10 and 11, and you see that verse 11 is parallel to the first half of verse 10. This is why John Stott calls this a double beatitude, because verse 11 is a parallel of the first half of verse 10, and verse 12 is a parallel to the last half of verse 10. So Jesus is just expounding on what he's told us in verse 10 by giving it to us again in different words in verse 11 and 12. But there is one significant change between verses 10 and verse 11 and 12. Jesus gives the beatitude in verse 10, like we're used to getting them in all the other Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But then in verse 11, he changes to speak specifically to the crowd that's around him. Blessed are you. It's as if Jesus is, is making clear to the people that are listening. You are going to be persecuted. There might be a temptation for those listening that might be thinking that he's talking about somebody in a faraway land or at a distant time period from him when the kingdom of heaven finally comes. But he's very clear, lest we think that way, he's very clear, blessed are you when others revile you. In other words, if you follow me, you are going to be persecuted. But let's be clear what Jesus means here by persecution. He specifically says in verse 10, persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do we know what righteousness' sake means? Well, yeah, he's told us in the list of Beatitudes that occurs before this one. Because of the value system for those that are in the kingdom, because it's different than those in the world, you're going to be attacked because you value meekness, because you hunger and thirst for righteousness, because you are merciful, and like we talked about last week, because you're a peacemaker. You're going to be attacked. So we need to get rid of this idea that you can call yourself persecuted because you happen to be Christian and people don't like you. It's possible that you're just a jerk. <laughs> That's not persecution. We're not told in we're, we're told in scripture specifically the reality of the world that we live in that the gospel will offend many, but we're not told that we have to help it out by our personality. 
that we have to give them a reason to hate us by the way we act. In fact, we're told quite the opposite. When Peter mentions this beatitude in 1 Peter, he explains it this way. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When people say bad things about you, make it obviously false, is what he's saying. That they may be put to shame. That what they're saying may be an obvious lie, because I know that person. I'm, I'm pretty sure we're not talking about the same person. Are we talking about the same person? That's not the person I know. Make it obviously false. The gospel is offensive, but the package that it's delivered in is to be seasoned with salt, to be gracious and kind, to be merciful and loving. It's not persecution if the words are true, in other words. But we also need to think differently about the idea of persecution. There's this idea that persecution is is only a physical assault or only an execution of an individual. And while that's true, that is certainly persecution. There's a temptation to see it only as that. That's certainly a horrid form of persecution, for sure, that none of us would wish for. But Jesus definition of persecution is a lot more broad. If you look in verse 11, he says, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. All of this, he's lumping into the same blessing, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is given to to all of those. And the word persecute here has a sense of of being chased away or or even driving out. So Jesus is saying that reviling or, or a word we more often use is mocking, chasing away or persecution, which, which obviously could mean physical torment or torture, or even slander if it's done to you because you are His follower. It qualifies as persecution. This is why I said earlier that we should be able to look over the horizon of our culture and we can see the storm clouds brewing in the distance. Persecution is gathering over the American culture as a whole. And because there is a a growing animosity, not, not just towards a particular Christian or evangelist, but towards the message of the gospel itself. And certainly there are many occupations where it's already beginning to rain in America. If you work for or employed by a municipality, you have probably already been rained on a little bit. If you work for a school or a university, you can probably educate the rest of us on what that kind of pressure feels like. And it might never mean that you're hauled off to jail. It might mean that you lose your job, but it's it's no less being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. 
We should be ever in prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being crucified, beheaded, hanged, imprisoned, and tortured for their faith. Praying that they can receive justice in this life. Praying that the Lord would come quickly. But we should also pray for our own resolve as the storm clouds of persecution gather over our own house. Brothers and sisters, are you ready? We didn't fear. The King of kings and the Lord of lords calls us blessed. And he says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to one such as thee. Second thing that I want us to observe is that the righteous should rejoice over future reward. The righteous should rejoice over future reward. Jesus offers this comfort to those who are persecuted. He says, "For, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 12, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. So I want you to consider what Jesus is saying for just a minute and then then think about what it means for our lives. First, ask yourself, what what is the reward that's promised? And the answer is at the end of verse 10 and then reiterated in the first part of verse 12. He says there in verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 12, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. He's saying the same thing a slightly different way. What is the reward? The reward is the kingdom of heaven. But then we need to ask... What's that? When we first started going through Matthew, we said that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are essentially the same thing. But to give you a concise definition, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning that God is coming to this place to bring to His people to bring his people all under his rule through the saving work of Christ. That's what he is coming to do. That's what Jesus is here for. So the reward that Jesus offers is that those who are being persecuted will be given fully the kingdom of God. In other words, they won't be living in a far country anymore. They'll they'll not be bothered by sin anymore. There won't be any temptation to live in any other way but in full submission to God's law, to God's rule, to God's reign. The reward is that they'll be fully immersed in God's kingship without any distraction. Well, then we need to ask, to whom is this reward of the kingdom of heaven given? And the answer is the righteous. Specifically in verse 10, he says, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Well, we said a a few weeks ago that it's living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So it's submitting, in, in other words, to God's rule and His reign. So if you put together what Jesus is saying, think about this for just a minute. The reward of full enjoyment of God's rule and His reign is given to those who are currently seeking to live under God's rule and His reign. In other words, the reward of God's kingdom is the reward of eternal life. 
the reward of heaven. And it is for those whose deepest desires are fixed on obedience to God now. That's what he's saying. Your obedience, your deepest desires need to be fixed on obedience to God now. So in that sense, you're already a member of the kingdom of heaven. If your, your desires are fixed on obedience to him, on coming under his rule and his reign. So do you understand what I'm saying? It's a question of desires. It's a question of the heart. What does your heart long for? You must understand that the life of a Christian is not a life of check boxes. I went to church, check. Read my Bible, check. Said my prayers, check. Didn't say curse words, check. Minus. It's not a series of checkboxes. The question, are you a Christian? When that's asked, I'm not asking, do you do the things that Christians do? Anybody could do that. That could be said of anybody in this room. You could go home tomorrow and you could resolve in your life to read your Bible every single day. And you could go to church every time the doors are open. And you can go around calling yourself a Christian, but that's not what I'm asking. When you're asked the question, are you a Christian? It's really asking the question, what satisfies the deepest longings and desires of your heart? And if the answer to that question isn't living in complete submission to King Jesus, then you might be a lot of things, but saved is not one of them. And it's best that you understand that now. Think about this for just a minute. A person who desires to live in submission to King Jesus, you know what that person's going to do? They're going to go to church. They're going to pray. They're going to read their Bible. They're going to refrain from vulgar talk. But the difference is that the reason that they do these things isn't merely out of obligation. It's because the, it's not because these are the kinds of things that Christians do. The reason Christians do these things is because the Christian heart is most satisfied in God. When they're worshiping God, when they're face to face with the Word of God, when they're on their knees in communication with God, they're most satisfied in God. Listen, when the storm clouds of persecution gather over your house, your checklist is going to change dramatically, it's going to disappear. If what satisfies your most deep desires 
isn't an abiding relationship with Christ, then you're going to say, Bible? I don't own one of those. Church? (laughs) Who needs it? The reason is because Christ isn't your master. And when the gun is pointed at your head, are you a Christian? Every last one of us are going to serve our master. So when you're faced with that question, save your life or lose it, the question really is, who is your master? Is saving your own neck your master? Saving your life, is it your master? Fitting in with the culture, is that your master? Being liked and respected, is that your master? Decide now. Don't wait till then to decide. Those whom Jesus calls blessed are the ones whose deepest longing is to obey Christ and to be found in Him without spot or blemish. So therefore, they set their faces like flint against a downpour of persecution, and rather than run for cover, they say, hit me with everything that you've got, because by the grace of God, that He has given me the strength to endure. Knowing that losing their life for the sake of righteousness means truly finding it in eternity. But you might be thinking, well, how do I know if it's truly my heart's desire to live in submission to King Jesus? Because if you're like the rest of us, all of us, some of us are thinking, well, sometimes it is, I think. And then sometimes I get really distracted and it's not. So how do I know if my heart's desire is to live in submission to King Jesus because I'm caring about this body of flesh that's bound to sin? Are you poor in spirit? Have your eyes been opened to how undeserving you are to be called a child of God? Do you see that you bring nothing to the table that would put God in your debt? Do you mourn over your own sin? When you see your own sin and your own spiritual poverty, does does it grieve you? Does it bring you to tears about how your sin affects your relationship with an almighty God? How it affects your own spiritual growth and well-being into the people that are around you. Are you meek? Are you humbled by God's loving kindness toward you? And do you reflect that loving kindness toward others? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you desire to live in accordance with God's will? Or is it just a checklist? Do you respond mercifully toward others? Understanding how you have been the beneficiary of God's mercy, do you then respond mercifully toward others? Are you pure in heart? Do you live in accordance with true convictions? Are you here because this is really what you believe? This is really what you're resolved to do? This is really what you desire most? Or is it just an act? Are you a peacemaker? Is your desire to see sin dealt with and peace made between warring parties? Do you desire to see people come to peace with God? Now, as I said, 
throughout the Beatitudes, this list isn't 100% true of anyone in this room, including myself. Every last one of us are supposed to be identifying areas in our lives as we work through this list where we're the most proud, where we're the most boastful, where we're the most arrogant, where we're anything but meek, and where we're anything but peacemaking and confessing these as sin to God. That's what we're supposed to be doing as we move through this list. None of us in this room can claim 100% perfection on this character profile. However, if your eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God to see the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then these characteristics should be growing truer of you over time. I'm afraid that we've preached the grace of God far too cheaply in our churches. We've lowered the bar to the point that a genuine heart change isn't even necessary for membership. You can come quite happily into a congregation, vote in the business meetings, attend all the fellowships, go to all the worship services, only missing every now and then when you have a really good excuse, and you leave feeling reassured of your place in the kingdom of heaven. And then the grace of God is just thrown on as a blanket to cover everything else. And it covers all of my, my, my real desires. And it covers all the times when I, when I really, truth be told, I just don't desire to, to worship Him. It's boring. The music's always bad. Preacher just rambles on all the time and it's boring. And grace is just thrown on as a blanket to cover all of those things. When they really may testify to something deep down that your heart actually doesn't long for Him at all. But the reason that persecution strengthens the resolve of the church is because when persecution rises, the people that are just pretending to worship God all leave. Their checklist has changed. Their masters have been revealed. And they've been found wanting. And what's left are the people that are willing to kneel on a beach and have their head chopped off for the gospel. Friends, each one of us really needs to do an evaluation of our own heart. Have your eyes been opened to see your sin and does it grieve you? When you think of Jesus, the only begotten Son, hanging on the cross, suffering the wrath of God for the sins of His people, what does it do to you? He didn't just stay there on the cross. He got off. He was buried, and three days later he rose from the dead. And his resurrection is a promise and a guarantee of our resurrection. Do you believe this? Yes. Emmanuel Baptist Church, do you believe this? Yes, I do. If you're hearing this for the first time or the millionth time, 
and your eyes have maybe just now been opened to your sin, and your heart has been brought to grief, I have good news for you. You can confess your sin. He's faithful and just and will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Friends, genuine heartfelt belief in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the only way that we're ever going to be able to weather the storm of persecution. That's it. And truly, we may be persecuted. Some of us may already be feeling it. But Jesus counts us blessed. Jesus counts us blessed. He even says that your names will be included among the apostles and the prophets that came before you. Because they hated them too. Are you ready? Let's say that you've answered that question, yes. Let's say that you've said, yes, my heart has been changed by the power of a great affection toward our the Lord Jesus Christ. It's overflowing. I'm ready for the tidal wave of persecution should it come to my doorstep. Well, brothers and sisters, we don't just sit and wait. We move out in mass. We force their hand. You understand? We force their hand. We move out in mass proclaiming the gospel boldly. If there's nothing that they hate more than the gospel, then proclamation of the gospel will bring persecution to our doorstep quicker. It's demonstrating to a world that we love not our own lives even unto death. A simple proclamation of the gospel. Your answer to the question, are you ready, will depend on your fervor. How timid you are in telling others about the faith that is within you. About the hope that you have. Does it cause you to shrink back? Or does it give you boldness to proclaim it even louder? Telling the world that there's nothing more important in this life than being reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. So how do you do this? Well, in a moment, we're going to celebrate a baptism. A student who was led to Christ and is currently being discipled by a lady in our congregation. If our hearts are as filled with the Lord Jesus as we say they are, then sharing the gospel with an unbeliever should be quite natural. Discipling them should come as a joy to us. That's our task. Make disciples. But if there's anything that will force the hand of the culture around us, it is seeing a strong church with nothing to lose, refusing to be quiet. As Peter said in Acts 4.20, whether it's right to obey you rather than God, you're going to have to decide. But as for us, 
we cannot keep quiet about what we have seen and heard. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about storm clouds of persecution gathering on the horizon, some of it here already, for most of us in this room, including myself, there's temptation to panic. temptation to fret and worry. Sometimes even temptation to think maybe God's not really in control. Strengthen our resolve. Fortify our resistance. Lord, your word tells us the gates of hell won't prevail against the message of the gospel. May we trust in that. Trust like we've never trusted before. That when we leave this room, we can boldly tell our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors the truth of the gospel. How timid we feel sometimes. How difficult it is. Lord, we confess that. That's sinful. It's true of me. It's true of everyone in this room. We are sometimes so timid. Strengthen our resolve. Lord, for our brothers and sisters, some of whom in this very room are feeling the pressure in their jobs. Anchor their legs in the bedrock truth of the gospel. That when the winds of persecution come, they can stand on that truth and not be swept over. Not be tossed to and fro. I also pray for our attitude that as we move out resolute that we would do it with kindness and grace and mercy and that our speech is seasoned with salt. That when people hear it even if they don't believe it calls to something within them that really wants to. May our character be impeccable. Reveal to us, Lord, any of those inconsistencies in our life. We all have them. That we could just own them, just confess them to you. And have assurance of freedom and forgiveness. Lord, when we look into heaven, we don't see 
father shaking his head, saying, tisk, tisk. We see a father with open arms, hugging his children. And we are grateful that we can be numbered among them. And we long for the day when we stand around the throne and worship at your feet. I pray for our resolve now. Through the testimony of the Christians in this church, that there will be many others from Tuscaloosa around us. Give us the boldness to share. Strengthen our legs. In Jesus' name, amen.